I'm excited to be here and to share some ideas as part of this series that Pastor Dave's been teaching on influence, your influence, the influence, first of all, of Christ in the world, the influence that we have uh, in our own lives, uh, our influence in small groups and in community. And now the, the sort of completing of that series is this arc where we look at social media and social influence and how that's changing the entire world. This is the era of the Arab Spring, of a new democratization of ideas, open source media, sharing things in new ways where it's not all top down, where corporations aren't simply dictating through traditional media what they think you want to hear and consume, but you get to react and respond. 70 to 80% of the top performing companies today are finding that best practices in social media are essential because now media, now culture, now society is a dialogue. And there's a two-way conversation going on in the world today that's different than anything that's ever taken place. We're living in new ground. It's a new era. It's what the futurists are calling the 500-year delta. It's been 500 years since Gutenberg took the printing press and published a work that is the most extraordinary piece of social media to date. It's the most dangerous piece of social media. And yet we take it for granted. It sits and collects dust on most people's shelves today. If you're a person of Christian faith or background, you might even be in a home that doesn't have this book. But wouldn't you be curious if someone told you about the most banned, the most bur burned book in history, the most feared book and the most venerated book, the most influential collection of literature? It's disparate. Uh, authors, 48 authors, 66 books, 15 centuries of collected wisdom and experience with a standard of perfection and delivery through prophetic ministry and influence that has, without error, you cannot have any error if you're going to be a true prophet or you're a false prophet. So the standard of what is included in this book is what is considered vital and real. But this is also a book, and here's the book. Talk about social media. Here's a piece of media. And what is media? Let's define our terms. Social media influence is what we're talking about this morning. Influence is atmosphere. It's influenza shares the same root meaning as influence. <laughs> uh, a room full of hypochondriacs. Oh, was I really close to that guy? Listen, when you think about how we influence and our influence, the whole world is a set of influences. We're in a sacred space, if you would regard it that way. Uh, by the way, I never like to assume, and I say this frequently, I never like to assume I know everything about people in an audience just because this is considered a Christian sacred space. It's bricks, mortar, glass. It's kind of pretty. It's got a history. It's, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a remarkable and historic building. But what makes it sacred is its dedication to purpose and use. What makes you sacred or secular is your dedication to purpose and use. How you see yourself in life's meaning. You can live a life. You could be somebody who comes into a church and feels like you're a Christian by tradition or by some sort of inherited rote behavior. But, you know, because I walk into a garage doesn't necessarily make me a car. It's specific and intended purpose. Because you walk into a church doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. What is a Christian? Christianity has suffered. If you're a 21st century Christian, part of the burdensome and onerous responsibility you have in the world today to be effective or to be relevant is to explain all the problems Christianity has presented. Because institutionally, Christianity has had some real ups and downs. We'd better own and understand that, not necessarily have to apologize for everything that's done in the name of Christ, certainly, but when anything, any idea, any media, any influence is this powerful, 
it will be subject to use and abuse. The Nazis understood that. Uh, there, there have been groups, I and mean, think about the educated and cultured and informed German society that thought because the brown shirts and national socialism was something that gave some, some people a sense of inspiration after the Versailles Treaty and a, a sense of hope that it would inspire people, but that Hitler would go away. But a man in his 20s, an extraordinary man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who my friend Eric Metaxas has written an extraordinary New York Times bestselling biography on, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, prophet, pastor, martyr, spy. Talk about a unique job description. It makes us slightly suspicious of Dave. Kidding, kidding. I think Dave is... Um, but when you think about, by the way, it's so important that you honor the people that serve you. I've been around Dave and Cheryl and your pastoral staff when they're not in front of you all. And here's what I can tell you about these people. They have a burden of service and loving and caring for you that is so genuine and so real. This isn't a job for them. This is a high calling, and they take it with real seriousness and sobriety and vigor and excitement and joy. You're fortunate to have leadership like you have in this church. And they sit through service after service. I was here on a Saturday morning. Here Saturday morning, yesterday in the morning, people on their knees in prayer, praying for you guys, praying for me, praying for all. So I want you to know this isn't just a job for these people, these brothers and sisters. It's a calling, and it's a high calling to servant leadership. You're fortunate to have good leaders. You don't always have that. And that's part of the problem. We need discernment today. In an era of influence in social media, what makes us social creatures? We need each other. We're better off with each other. Generally, not always. It depends on the influence. So what is needed today in education? More and more, I talk to educational leaders when I have the opportunity to sit down here with their concerns about the academic environment around the, in Western civilization and around the world. It's to give people the ability not only to memorize pre-digested information and regurgitate it for a test, so they can go on to the next level and matriculate. That was me in college. <laughs> but to create people who have the faculties of critical discernment. If we need anything today in an era of social media, open source thinking, and the powerful influence that can create both propaganda as well as the dissemination of truth, we need discernment. Where would you get discernment? Most of our thinking is generally subjective. You may have a very good education. You may have several advanced degrees here today. What impressed me about the demographics and psychographics of this church congregation is the fact that you're so educated. This is a, a, a higher than average, in terms of median education, congregation. So I would expect you guys to be critical thinkers. And that's the beauty of Christian faith and the spiritual journey that's represented in Christ. He welcomes curiosity. Testing the credibility of the claims. Christian faith is not afraid. How many ideologies and philosophies are taken at face value, follow the leader, don't think too critically or look at it in comparison to other truth systems or proclaimed truth systems? Christian faith begs you, in fact, demands you, take your skepticism, your questions, and test it. This is a faith founded on fact, not feelings. In an era where people feel discontent and disoriented, there's a heightened sense of uncertainty. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of mountain biking with my friend James. I love to go on little adventures with him. And after he abandoned me in the dust, uh, you know, he had other obligations. We actually had a lot of fun. I can tease him that way. 
But I ended up at Occupy. And I went down to Occupy Bank. I've seen Occupy in a lot of parts of the country. I live in New York City. So I've seen Occupy developing as a movement, whatever it is, the 99% movement. And so I was curious. I wanted to hear what people were thinking. And I spent some time just listening and being down with, with, with the folks at Occupy. And I thought Occupy represents a discontent with something much larger than we might admit on the surface. And the problems are not just the inequitable distribution of wealth or resources. You can change the paradigm. You can change the distribution of resources. You still have to come back to some kind of value set. I had a very interesting guy who I, I listened to for a long time yesterday. We had a good conversation. We disagreed. But I really appreciated listening to his thoughts on how we need to live in a society without money. I said, what would that look like? Because eventually you're going to have any 10 people working in a garden or on a project or 100 people, or 1,000 people, or 10,000 people are going to have different roles to do something that creates value for other people that they can buy, sell, and trade. What do you do without any monetary system at all and without even a barter system? And he wasn't sure. And I said, ultimately, one person may end up working harder than another person or being more clever or smarter than another person, may leverage some idea that will benefit everybody and has, therefore, a shared value that everyone can par participate. I might be good at raising broccoli, but somebody else is going to invent a bicycle. And the bicycle may help all the broccoli farmers get their broccoli to market. Like my friend Tom Ritchie in Rwanda created a new kind of coffee bike to help the Rwandan coffee farmers get their bags of harvested beans down to market, mostly downhill, but uphill too, Rwanda, and do it with coffee bikes that he custom designed. Well, what's the value of that for an entire culture, an entire economy? It's extraordinary. So not everything we do has the same value, does it? Now, if you want to be part of the 99% movement, and there's influence there. You go down there and you come under that influence. You think that the world is upside down. It's wrong. It's inequitable. And guess what? It is. It's a broken world. And at the same time, go out along the ocean side, go out in the mountains. It's a beautiful world. Look into the eyes of somebody and see the beauty and mystery and majesty and the potential in a human being. It's a and someone who's both broken and beautiful. But we have a solution. The Christian journey, the Christian faith, not always not always evenly represented, not always perfect. But in the Christian journey is something unique, a presentation and an analysis of the human condition that is unlike any other analysis. And if we don't get the analysis right, we'll never figure out the just distribution of resources and wealth in this world. And I, and I would venture to say there will never be a completely equitable and just distribution of resources. Because people won't have the same motivation, the same sense of value or dignity or worth of work. Work is a burden. Work, work is part, in a sense, a curse of having rejected God's promise of living in his presence and power and obedience in the garden. Going back to the tree, the, the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You think about icons and the influence that a simple icon can have. I'm a big fan of Apple products. I've worked with them. The passing and demise of Steve's job is a, jobs is a real loss. It's sad to me, and I've read so much. I'm reading Walter Isaacson's book on him now. It's so sad to me that he was uncertain and undecided about the very nature of God toward the very end. He adopted a Buddhist lifestyle or Buddhist tenets of Buddhist philosophy at one point, 
But toward the end in his last interviews with Walter Isaacson, he says, I'm not certain. Can you imagine living your life and having such extraordinary success and experience and, and, and it, it's been described as a kind of creative genius of the imagination for the tech world that's affected all of us, that particularly people that appreciate the aesthetic design and interface of Apple computer products. But Steve Jobs represents something more. He's an icon of our aspirations. But here is this man who in the end sadly was undecided, uncertain about the very nature of his existence. Computers will come and go and constantly change. Steve himself said that we shouldn't put too much weight on technology. It doesn't change everything. Interesting. So when you think about social media and the influence of social media today, first of all, media is anything between us that transmits something else. Paper's a medium. My, my voice uh, stimulate my, my voice box stimulating the airwaves and creating uh, movement in the air that's picked up by a very, very sensitive diaphragm in this microphone. And it's translated and transmitted electronically to a speaker, so it amplifies my voice. I have an unduly, I have a disproportionately larger voice than I would normally hear. And you're gracious enough to take the risk of coming here this morning listening to me your pastoral leadership has given trusted me a sacred trust of faith to say, bring us some word. They'll give us insight and lead us closer to, our, to Jesus in our faith journey. This is all, these are all steps of mediation. It's a mediated world. But if you think about, as I reflect on the Occupy people, and there's some friends here from Occupy here this morning that were here earlier and wanted to stay in the next service, and I'm so glad they're here. Because we need, this is a Christian faith. For heaven's sake, we welcome debate, diversity, different understandings so that we can grow in truth and honesty, in love, in faith, hope, and love toward loving God and loving our neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Are you in love? Are you in love? Oh, I remember love. Want to be in love? I'm not just talking about romance. I'm talking about that sacred and extraordinary discovery that the world is so beautiful and full of possibilities that you don't need, as George Harrison and the Beatles did in their experimentations with LSD. I just saw the George Harrison documentary. Fascinating. And on one occasion, one of the people that worked for Apple Corps, their publicist, came. It was fascinating. And he and his wife described being greeted by the Beatles for a weekend like a house party, as the Brits have. Greeted for a house party, and, and they dropped acid. And they said, we just felt so loved, and everything was loving. Everything was filled with possibilities. We just felt like every moment of everything we were experiencing, existence itself was permeated with love. We felt that love. And, you know, it was, it was exciting to me to hear about that. And I thought to myself, Love as romantic inspiration is different than the sense of love as discovery, the potential of giving and sharing and experiencing something together. Love takes togetherness. Love takes a giving. Imagine living in love, being in love all the time. Life has its ups and downs for sure. But imagine being one of the principal tenets of your way of seeing the world around you, the lens through which you see, see the world in every person, is basically love. Not fear, not competition, 
not in an equitable distribution of resources according to someone else's value system. What if it's just love? And if there's one place that's weird enough and cool enough and full of the prospects of being filled with love, it's right here. It's the church. We don't think about this. We take it for granted. Well, I got to do my church thing, and after that, we're going to go to brunch, and then we're going to go to the, you know, whatever. Here's the centerpiece of the week. Here's the point of contact as a community, along with other points of contact and small group and other connecting points, where you get to be in this mediated environment of influence. What happens when you come into a sacred space dedicated to a sacred purpose like the church? And what is the church again? It's from the word kirka. What is kirka from? It's from the word ecclesia. What is ecclesia? To be called out. The, the commerce and the din and noise and distraction of everything in the world around you, even the world we carry with us in our smartphones, so much information at our fingertips. My friend Buzz Aldrin, second man to walk on the moon, I was having lunch with him in New York not that long ago, and he said, Gordon, you've got more computing power in your hand than the Apollo space capsule that took me to the moon and back. Talk about faith. <laughs> now, you're sure we know how to get back. <laughs> wow, that's a long way from home. You know what they did up there that most people don't realize? Buzz told me this. It was ne never saw it in the papers. Eric wrote about it in his blog, Eric with Taxes. They took communion. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, you talk about the sacred space. So you come into the church, and it's just like the epitome of weirdness. I mean, think about it in a way. You come in, interesting architecture, kind of safe, not too crazy, but not a Gothic cathedral. But you come in here. And you're singing about slain animals and blood and just, and everybody, but everybody looks kind of nice. They don't look like they're in some kind of tribal sacrifice mode. I mean, just think about it for a minute. It is truly, you know, there's weird and there's good weird. And this is the good weird. But you can't just take this for granted and think that it's going to have any power to change your life or the lives of others. You don't think more deeply about the Christian journey. Why bother? Christianity is so counterintuitive. Jesus is so counterintuitive. He would save his life, must lose it. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world and lose his own life? So think about <clears throat> occupying an occupation. I was thinking about that and thinking, <clears throat> we are an occupation force. If you're a Christian, you're a believer, you're on the journey. By the way, it's not about how good you are and how you're performing. <clears throat> My performance sucks a lot of the time. Just failure to live up to the fullness of the glory of God. That's the standard. <laughs> Excuse me, as you can see. But if we don't have the right vision of the standard, then we're going to fall short all the time because we've just subjectivized it. We've made it a standard I'm comfortable with. When I was a kid, I can remember thinking, I don't, I don't feel like a sinner. Like I basically do what my parents want me to do, and I'm here at church. I'm not a murderer or a thief. So I had this relative standard. I'm not as bad as the next guy. Most people define righteousness and what's just according to their own standards. 
What if you became acquainted with a standard of justice that was absolutely perfect, complete? You, you would expect nothing else from the creator of the cosmos. So you come into church, and it's an insult to ego. Right off the bat, people are singing about someone besides your romantic feelings. Love is about giving, sacrifice, glory to the lamb who was slain. This isn't an iconic image of an animal alone. This is the very God of glory himself who came and loved us so much he gave himself to us. Took that risk and invites us to respond to his love in faith and surrender. What's the alternative? Architecting your own design and desires. I've worked in media and marketing for 20 years. We spend a lot of time studying the needs, wants, and desires of people. And then we fashion fantasies. We create ad campaigns that make you think, if you buy this car, this product, even this toothpaste or whatever, you're going to be so popular, so successful. Think of all the people that will fill this new car you're going to buy. And they're cool, fun people listening to great tunes. And getting great gas mileage, too. It's natural. But think realistically about where your sense of purpose and identity comes from. Because if you don't get that right, you will constantly be manipulated by us on Madison Avenue. Or you'll constantly feel like you're just a pawn <clears throat> when it comes to Occupy Wall Street, that some rich, powerful people are manipulating you. It's not as easy as that, is it? It's a complex world. Sometimes ideas and energy and work is is merited with not only favor, but with value. Sometimes someone works harder, has a better idea, and there's value in that. Is that fair? It's only going to be fair when it's reconciled to the kingdom of God and the power and influence of God over our lives. This will only work when we're not just trying to be the 99% that's occupying Wall Street, for heaven's sake. You think that will really fix the problem? We need to be the 100% that occupies the full potential of our humanity. And then we're faced with a dilemma. That 100% is 100% broken, guilty, and in, and in rebellion before God. The beauty of the Christian journey is it invites you to be healed without violating your free will. It invites you to be reconciled to God through surrender. And through surrender to find fullness, identity, peace, power, Meaning, is that not what most people are looking for? We are an occupation force. If you're a believer, you bring the possibility of a little taste of heaven through forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, kindness, servanthood, love for others. You have that commission. You have that responsibility. And you have that opportunity to be empowered by God himself who when you surrender will give you the ability to do things you can't do on your own according to the devices and desires and designs of your own heart. It's when we let go, put our hands in the air. These are just gestural expressions, of course. But that's the good weird. We need a sacred space. Space. We need to not just be in the kirka, we need to be the ecclesia. Our people called out to be refreshed, worship in fellowship, in community, in communion. You talk about social media. Why is social media so important today? Because we can share ideas, be a part of something larger than our own selves. 
And sometimes, by the way, it's easier to be part of social media online than it is real social media in the presence of other people. Because they have to see me warts and all, all my junk, and love me, and I, and I have to grow in love and learn to love them. There is no place on this earth where there's a greater opportunity to experience the influence of redemptive social media than where you are right now. And it's not just sitting in pews with your facing the back of someone else. It's when you get up, go somewhere else, and you've got to understand the DNA of the church, which is small groups, which is accountability through love and service, which is a calling to servant leadership. Do we understand that or we just take it for granted? Are you religious? Are you spiritual? Are you, are you becoming deeply, transformatively renewed into the image and likeness of Christ? Because Jesus is the ultimate social media. What is media again? It's a form of transmission. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it changes something. Jesus, spirit became flesh. God became incarnate. Jesus is the ultimate expression of media. And in that way, in social media, Jesus offers himself to us, and he says, it's expedient for you. It's a good thing. It's going to be cool for you. Don't freak out that I go away. Modern parlance, I know. Forgive my translation. But have you thought about this? <clears throat> because I will send another, even the Holy Comforter, to counsel you, comfort you, lead you into all truth. And you want to talk about a wireless device? Wow, baby. Talk about bandwidth. Here's Almighty God wanting to get into your thoughts and minds, your motives, and work with you and love you and love through you and do things you can't do on your own. That's the cool, risky, scary journey that we're called on if we're going to follow Jesus. Put the labels aside. Put whatever cliches and stereotypes. That's a big part of what we are our challenge as people of faith in God and followers of Jesus in the 21st century is the first thing we have to talk about are the cliches and stereotypes people have, which have nothing to do with the power and presence of Jesus. Amen? So we've, we'd better be more sophisticated in how we approach people and understand what is ultimately innocent and simple. Our motives, loving them. It is so simple. And loving everybody, even your enemy. I've worked on Wall Street. I've worked in Madison Avenue. I had to get over a certain, I don't know, maybe it was an attitude about the Occupy movement until I realized what that is a reflection of is a spiritual need, ultimately. You can try to redistribute material things in this world. You won't satisfy, ultimately, people's deepest needs. It is a greatly uncertain world today. And because of the speed and power of transmission and technology and communication, we know about those needs faster than ever before. And it's overwhelming. You can't even keep up with your own emails. And people are unfriending each other at record rates in North America now. They're saying there's a certain saturation level at which, you know, you're friending people on Facebook. I don't even know. I mean, at what point do you get to, you know, from 50 to 150 to 350 to 700, 800? Who are these people? You're telling them what's going on in your life and what you care about and what matters and more and more levels of detail. 
Come on, what you and I need is real friendship. What you and I need is somebody who really cares, who's really in my corner, who really, the two things we want more than anything in life, I, I, I think, is to know other people and to be known. What is more satisfying than to have somebody who knows you and loves you, even in your junk? Friendship is knowing your junk. And I have friends that know my failures, my shortcomings, my struggles, and I can be honest with them. Man, I'm glad to have friends because they're still loving me. They'll correct me, challenge me, but you know what? Guess who's going to show up? When I was in the hospital this year, guess who showed up at my bedside like 24 hours, my real friends? I had like a hypertension moment. I wasn't sleeping enough or whatever, traveling too much. But I'm grateful for friends. Now, the Bible, if you'll take this on faith. And again, I'm not assuming you're even a believer here. A lot of people, I hope you're not. The church, the ecclesia is vibrant when it's filled with people who are inquiring. It's when we bring our friends and say, hey, I may not be getting this right. And by the way, get over this burden. Like, I have to be perfect. And everything I do has got to be so wonderful to get people to believe I'm a Christian or, like, want to follow Jesus. You'll never get there. Get over that one. Just be real about your struggle. Say, I want to be more loving. I want to be more giving. I want to be more caring. I want to be more accountable. I want to expand the scope of my concerns and compassion. That's the journey we're on. Not, I am so great, I'm finally cool enough, and like I got through this whole week at work with all these cynics mocking me. Like, well, would you like to come to church? Not really. Or, how would you like to go on a journey with me and be with a bunch of people that are struggling with their deepest needs, fears, and concerns and dealing with in a way that exalts someone else and something else that has been so generous, so loving, so transformative, that the words and ideas in this book all centered around the living Christ, the ultimate incarnation of social media, that he's the one who can reconcile us, heal us, bring us together. It was in the first century in the Hellenistic world that Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek. That's a big distinction. Slave nor free, that's a big distinction. Barbarian or Scythian, these aren't people that got along. Uh, or, Or male nor female. Hello, this is the first century but all are one in Christ. I can say brothers and sisters today because Jesus is the greatest radical force of influence and social media change. Hallelujah. So where's the cool technology stuff you were going to talk about, Gordon? It's out there. We could talk for a whole, we could have a seminar on it. How to get involved in conversation. First, you have to you have to, as my friend Pascal Van Nis says, you've got to find, follow, and fuel. So Pascal's so good at this, I hired him to run social media for Burning Media Group. And I've been involved in some really cool stuff. Charity Water with Scott Harrison, some wonderful people who are inspiring visionaries and seeing the great good that social media can do. But for us as believers, and this is the scripture I'd like to start with. Ha! <laughs> um, Hilarious. First um, Corinthians 9, Paul says, look, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. In verse 22, I become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. There is so much richness here. In, e- almost, in, in each 
God bless Dave for letting me do this, but I've been kind of nuancing this message through each service because you just can't get it into 35 minutes. There's so much here. But the power of this and the power of social media in the hands who's peop who, of people who've been transformed by the greatest meet act of mediation between God and man, between spirit and flesh, to bring us on home. Who in this world doesn't want to find a place they can call home? Who in this world doesn't want to be invited to come home? And a place of peace is here where you're afraid. What's great about families? Well, they can be pretty dysfunctional. But the cool thing about your family, ultimately, if it's a healthy family or becoming a healthy family, we all are working on it, is a place that's safe. They're going to stand with you, care for you, nurture you, protect you, be with you. They also criticize you. That's part of the family dynamic because they want you to be your best and get along. But what place could be better than to find a place you can call home and be with a family that loves you? And that's the ecclesia. That's the good weird. We're not here because we're the smartest and coolest or whatever. We're here because something in us, if you're a follower of Jesus, responded to the invitation to love and get on your knees somewhere. If you haven't been on your knees and wept, if you haven't had that revelation of just how absolutely, utterly capable of wickedness you are and gotten rid of it or done that a few times, you don't understand the freedom that comes from forgiveness. And who has the authority and power and rightful claim to give us that forgiveness but the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ himself? That's what we're about. And we go out from here not feeling smugly self-satisfied and self-righteous, but feeling a terrible and onerous and wonderful liberating burden to share that good news with everybody we meet. Hey, dude, I got my John Fluvogs on. And I'm Vancouver, and, and I said earlier, I'm feeling good. My feet were happy to run because I live to share the love of Jesus with people. However imperfectly, I have received. He has forgiven much, loves much. God has loved me so much, and I am just beginning to awaken to the power of that love. Wouldn't you like to live in love? Wouldn't you like to just meet strangers instead of being there by fearful threat or competitor? This is my friend and the person I'm just discovering to be a brother or a sister. How exciting to live in love. You want to occupy something? We're called to occupy this world until Jesus comes again and to give some indication of what that love could look like in every sphere of influence that you're involved in. But the greater place to occupy is heaven. Let's occupy heaven on earth and share that with everybody we come in contact with. Then the power of what we do online or offline will have an influence that liberates, heals, and saves. Glory to the Lamb that was slain. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to download free notes from this message, then visit our website, www.coastalchurch.org.